Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alvin Tedger. I'm Sam Andre. And I'm Grima Talwar-Kapoor. Happy summer, everyone. It is our last pod of season five. I think I think we're on season five. Season finale. Season finale. <laughs> season five of Ontario Loud. The cliffhanger is here. Everyone's been waiting. After this episode, we will be taking our customary summer break, which uh, I will admit feels super essential and necessary this year, as I'm sure it does for everyone listening. And I think that is just given what we've been through, uh, given I think what a packed and interesting fall and winter we are likely to have, I uh, thought it might be a good time to stop, reflect, and as is our custom, answer some listener questions before we we go and we got a a bunch of really good ones today so maybe before we dive in just uh thoughts and reflections on the wild year that it has been for ontario lad thoughts reflections on season five it was our first season without alexi so our numbers went up so maybe that had something to do with it (laughs) (laughs) but we've been doing this show remotely for quite a bit i do miss the interaction that we have in person so looking forward to doing some recordings live in studio or something like that in the future. Yeah. I've never actually done a, a in-person recording, I think. The last one we did, it was just me and Sam. And it was like, it was weird because it felt like doom was impending, but we weren't sure. I wasn't sure at least about what we were about to get into. So yeah. And it was just like, oh yeah. Like I remember at that time, that's when the NBA season got canceled or suspended and it just felt like it did not feel like good things were to come but i don't think that we could have foreshadowed the craziness of the past 16 months at this point it feels like a lifetime ago and also like five minutes ago like all uh time right now but yeah i'm looking forward to a break and we have a great mailbag that i'm excited to dig into yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I must admit, in season six of Ontario Loud, I am excited to have things that aren't like, well, what are the new regulations? <laughs> what are the distancing requirements? What are the like? It just ate up so much space. I'm like so excited to be able to talk about some other things and have some space to go away and think about what we should be talking about in the next season. And yeah, I agree. Our our listeners, we actually got very few COVID questions. So I think our, our listeners may be excited for that as well. On that last recording that you guys had in person, I remember I was going to go to it. And then I, so I was like, ah, you know what? I'm feeling a little under the weather, just out of an abundance of caution. I like canceled at the last second. I remember I dropped the recording equipment off at Sam's place. And it was like one of the last times that I saw Sam in person. <laughs> totally wild. But uh, yes. All right. Well, I'm going to move us uh, to our mailbag because there are some, we've got a lot and there are some good ones. We'll just dive right in with our first question from Earl J. Sacri, who asks, is it just too politically dangerous to oppose the Catholic school system? Or do the other parties, especially the progressive parties, really believe we should be directing public money to support one particular religion? I hear that it would be an intractably difficult constitutional maneuver to change the system. A bunch of other provinces have had no problem doing it. So like what's true here? And he also says very kindly, love the podcast, listen every week. Thanks for the work we do to advocate for fair outcomes. He has never voted liberal, but y'all seem okay. So kind. So kind. (laughs) 
That's like a really nice compliment. I'll take the we're okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I will point out, Earl, that we are we are not all we are not all liberal. Uh, Harmon, our, our research volunteer, would be first to point out that he's aggressively not liberal. So we're not all liberals on the pod, but but some of us definitely are. So who wants to start? Catholic schools. I don't mind starting if you want. I mean, Alvin's views on this are public record, but so maybe you should start, Alvin. But I, so I have lots of feelings and thoughts about this. It's an issue that I've thought about, and longtime listeners of of the podcast will know that I worked in education for a number of years. I think obviously, if we were designing the system today, it would not look like this. But to undo it would be to really reorganize the entire school system from the ground up and for a political party and a government to take that on, A, I think you'd need a really clear mandate because a third of Ontario families choose that system. And it's also something, it would be easier, I think, to make the move if Ontarians were starting to vote with their feet, right? If the system was getting smaller and as, and it's kind of interesting, like church attendance is certainly down. There's a lot of other data points to suggest that people are moving away from the Catholic um, church, but enrollment in the system is not down. And so like if a government could point to something like that to say, we're following the lead of Ontarians in, I think that would be easier. That's not what's happening. Enrollment is stable, maybe even growing. And the savings that are suggested, while there might be real savings, on the ground would feel quite damaging, right? It is through bigger classes, through laid off janitors and vice principals, through schools being closed and sold off for development. Like the savings would not come at a community level in any popular way. It would become unpopular quickly. And reorganizing a system that fundamentally through new boundaries, new school boards, etc. It would be all you would do in the school system for years, right? Like it would be a huge endeavor. The barriers are numerous for why a government doesn't want to do this because the people who want it are not going to vote for you because of it and the people who will hate it and the people who will hate it will grow over as implementation proceeds, I imagine, will vote you out as a result of it. But I hope that just gives a little bit of context as to why what can feel obvious has just been a third rail for education policy for so long. Yeah, we could certainly talk about this for hours, and I have. I would say, just to address some of those things, Sam, like you're right, it's not as simple as people think it would be. And I think there's certainly an impetus right now for people to consider the system, given residential schools, given a number of public positions of trustees taking against Pride Week and Pride Month and recognition of LGBTQ rights and saying this is not in our doctrine. And the pushback that that has caused a lot of Ontarians rightfully to question, why are we supporting this with public funds? We don't support any other religion, religious-based education with that. On the enrollment numbers, I'll tell you, like my kids are in Catholic school because it's convenient. It happens to be the closest school. It happens to be the closest speaking school. And when you have 
schools that routinely perform better because of a different number of resources or they happen to be across the street, you're still going to get those enrollment numbers going to those places because I've heard a lot of parents tell me, I just think it's better. It's better because they wear uniforms. It's better because they've got some morality built into their curriculum. Not that those pieces aren't built into the public system, but it's different. It's different. And, and that sort of competition does help, I think, the quality of education that is offered. I think the bigger question right now is, will there ever be right, a circumstance that will line things up for people to say that we actually do want to change these things? Right. You obviously wouldn't make this kind of accommodation right now. Unbuilding this would be very difficult to do. You would have to have consensus broadly from students and teachers and parents that we can create a better system and that the system right now is failing in a number of ways. And I don't know that, that we're there yet. I obviously have advocated for the fact that I think we should not have religiously funded schools and a separate school system. That was not a position that was necessarily popular with within the political party, within the liberal party. But there are a lot of people who do support it, right? It's just the enthusiasm for that support. A friend of the pod, David Coletto, did, did a poll while I was running on that issue. Two thirds of Ontarians support it, but they support it moderately. They would like to see it, but the people who are against it are vehemently against it. And only half of Catholics, surprisingly. Undoing something without properly presenting how it would be implemented is tricky. And having to sort of show people like this would be a 10-year plan or whatever it is of how we would get out of it, how we would support unions, how we would support pensions, how students would transition, all of that would have to be explained. Where I do see a lot more support for this are in rural areas and northern communities where they are already seeing schools closed down because they don't have enough enrollment to support four different school boards. So if they actually only had two, an English and a French one, they could sustain those better. And that's why we had support from the former Catholic school board chair in Sudbury, because she was like, I saw that we didn't have enough resources to do this. It doesn't make sense anymore. We could still offer religious course-based education individually for students that wanted to take multiple religious, religious courses if they wanted to without having a completely Catholic system. And I think that's sort of where we're driving the conversation is sort of the, we can deliver this better and we need to be able to have this conversation without raising emotions too much. And if we can do that, then I think we can get to a path where we can actually imagine a system that could be better. I will just say quickly, I'm not so sold in that it's like constitutionally impossible at all. I don't think that's true. However, the point is where this has happened, there's been a clear political mandate, some kind of referendum has happened, some kind of thing. And I think that a progressive party would need to build some kind of political plan for this that would, uh, to your point, for all the reasons that Sam and Alvin said, but just in the, I, because I, Earl asked about the constitutionality, I don't buy that at all, but the, because uh, it has happened, but there has been a referendum or something big, something seismic has happened in these other provinces where it has happened. It isn't just sort of government fiat, government mandate. I think that would be a bad plan that would uh, likely not work. In, so, in theory, it's as easy as using the notwithstanding clause, right? I mean, it's <laughs> you change the constitution for your province only. It, it gets passed by an act of your legislature and it gets rubber stamped by the federal parliament. So is that true? I'm not sure that's true. And I think the notwithstanding clause only applies to certain clauses. Let's Google. Yes. That. I'm saying it's not exactly the notwithstanding clause. You would have to pass it as if it was a constitutional amendment. But because it's an amendment that only affects your province. But the feds would still it, have to agree. And again, if yeah, political... the feds have never not agreed to any provincially proposed constitutional amendment, including removing Catholic school funding in Quebec, Manitoba, 
Newfoundland and Labrador. Sure, but I just like, think the political was, ground would have to be built because I'm not convinced a federal liberal party would want to pass something. I think the deep, federal, you know unpopular. what? The more federal liberals I talk to, the more they're in favor they are of this, right? There's a lot of tweets out there saying, why doesn't Justin take care of this? And it's like, it's not within his purview. But the federal government has never, and nor do they entertain the idea of not passing Quebec's most recent yeah, amendment. Yeah, fair enough. Because they were like, this is a provincial jurisdiction thing. We're not going to mess with it. I don't see them messing with this either. Earl, you you asked a good one. This is lots of layers to this. I'm going to move us on to Aaron McLeod, who I just want to point out, Aaron McLeod has submitted a mailbag question every single time we've done a mailbag. So big shout out to Aaron. But as we're starting to improve the situation with the pandemic in Canada, how can we help position climate change and election reform as key ballot box issues? Given the current federal government and current provincial government of Ontario both won elections without winning the popular vote, we can see current election methodology doesn't quite represent the popular wishes regarding climate change we're seeing more doom and global doom and gloom news i feel like these are two larger issues we'll face over the next little while what can we do to push our leaders to make bigger changes in these areas i don't know about you guys i think this might be the key political question of our time yeah i think that this this is the political issue of our time right like we think that the pandemic was difficult to manage like the climate is heating. It's not about warming. It's not about changing. It's like, it's literally on fire. The ocean is on fire in the Gulf of Mexico. And so it's, I think that, that people across the country have moved past how much is this going to cost? Because they're really starting to see how frenetic the weather can be. And if we, it was very difficult for people to to push back against the pandemic, let alone forces of nature. And so I think people are looking for leadership and for good political leadership on that. And so when it, how we reform representation politically and whether that's and how electoral reform takes place, it's necessary because we know that a majority of people across the country and across the province do vote for progressive parties. And so and so if there's a way in which we can be more civil and less partisan in, a, in our trust or distrust of other parties, but also move forward really with a sense of like pure dedication towards climate change, that's the only way out, right? Like if we go back to 10 years ago to, to 2011, the type of, I don't think anybody could have predicted the type of, I don't even know what to call it, climate horror we're seeing like there's like snow in texas red skies in california last year an entire town in Lytton, bc was burned to the ground this past week and and so this i i think that it's no longer an abstract issue for people it, it's really real and it's it's up to political leaders to to do something about it and stop asking the question how much is it going to cost i think people have moved past it yeah no, and my sister lives in Kamloops and, you know, she sends, sends us pictures every day. You can't see the mountains. Look at all the ash and the smoke. And what's interesting about that story is that the, the people responding to it are saying, we don't need a plan for the future in terms of how this gets worse. We need to start planning for this being the regular occurrence all the time. So how do we mitigate those issues right now? It's not the climate change is going to happen. It's happening now. It's affecting us right now. And what I think was really telling, and we 
need to bring this back to politics for a second because Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party are out there saying it's us and everybody else. Like the conservatives are on one side on these issues, on climate, on the on on the economy, on this, that, and the other thing, and everybody else, as if like that was a bad thing, as if the rest of Canada and the rest of Canadian Canada's parties have reached a consensus in terms of what needs to be done, but they're the only ones who are still fighting for the little guy and fighting for businesses and making sure that we're doing the right thing. Like, get on board. Like, they're the only ones who are still way out on in in right field because they don't understand how this will have current impacts right now on our economy and our climate and on, on the population. Like the cleanup for this, the mitigation for this is all going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars and it's going to continue being a problem into the future. So I'd like to see the progressive parties continue to try to one up each other in the next election. This was the this was supposedly the number one issue in the 2019 election yeah. when people were polled and, and Doug Ford tried to use it against the prime minister at the time and when in fighting against the carbon tax. We'll see how much this changes the narrative just four years later, right? Now that I think people are seeing more tangibly the results of climate change affecting them on a day-to-day -day basis. I'd like to hope that the conservatives will come on board because I'd rather be discussing how good their climate plan is versus other climate plans. But I don't know that we're there. I agree with all that. I think three things I'm thinking about. So one is I agree that the political room to maneuver on climate and make bold what's what would have been considered draconian a few years ago moves is wide open for, for federally and provincially. I think whether the parties in power, like federally, the Liberal Party, will rise to that moment and actually be able to implement their lofty goals, I think is risk number one. I think risk number two is that the Conservatives quite cleverly now know that they can't run an anti-climate or anti-carbon pricing platform because the political window has shifted. But they're so they're being more clever in disguising what is still very anti-environment mentalist and anti-climate policies. And we see that playing out provincially in Ontario and Alberta, certainly. And then third, I think, just to the point made earlier, that these disasters are now happening, that we're now going to divert a lot of attention and resources to climate resilience and making sure that we can actually survive this thing rather than mitigate and reduce emissions to try to prevent it from getting worse, because those are really different fights and different efforts. And so I, I worry about all three of those things, but I agree with the comments made. The The moment has never been clear. I feel totally differently because I just don't think we're doing Aaron's mailbag justice on skipping over electoral reform. I think the moment for electoral reform in Canada is going to be dead for a while. Sorry. I think the Fed screwed it yeah. up. I, I agree that the Fed screwed up. I'm not sure it's dead, but I uh, agree with former podcast and uh, regular person on my Twitter, David Mosgrop's assessment of democracy stuff that it's not, nobody goes out and votes for democracy stuff, ballots, election reform, that kind of stuff. There is a constituency that really cares, but it is not a constituency that pulls people out. Climate change is. And I think the really core thing of Aaron's question is that Climate change, we have a system that overrepresents a party that is fundamentally not where it needs to be. And I view democ democratic reform, climate change is inextricably linked. Two, just because I, I'm feeling all of the anxiety just having listened to this, I have there's a couple things that give me some hope. 
One is that we have seen that Canadians aren't super opposed to spending tons of money in the way that we used to be. COVID has reduced our flexibility as a country a little bit. But I think that if there is an ambitious climate agenda that is expensive, I don't believe that's the same kind of deal breaker that it once was. And B, I think that there is wide open room on a message of it's going to be okay and here's how. And I'd, be, I'd love to see some like polling, marketing. like, And I don't think it's going to be okay means like the earth is going to be okay. Stick your head in the sand. But I think that there is very little reassuring space. You have a bunch of people saying, here's the policy stuff we're going to do. And then a bunch of debate about whether it's enough, whether it's not, how we're going to hold people's feet to the fire. All of that's really important. But I don't see anyone in the space of, we will get through this and we will do whatever it takes to get through it. And there's this deep subconscious anxiety in our society about this that we have yet to totally grapple with. And I think that, you know, as the more detailed this becomes, the more in the weeds and uh, because it is a science thing, it can be in the weeds. Then I, I think that we've seen a lot of people come together and marshal around the pandemic and come together in a way that despite some foibles and some bad leadership, we did get through that. And I'm hoping that maybe gives governments a template to tackle the next thing, which is going to be climate change. Um, going to move us on to Reed White, who asks, first of all, says she is shocked by Chris's Valentine's Day anecdote about the woman on a, who went on a date with me who put her fingers shaped into an L on her forehead when she discovered that he was a liberal staffer. I would, would have assumed, and as I would have read, that this woman would have been interested as to why I made that choice as opposed to sort of making it a deal breaker, but that's what happens. I've, I've moved well past it. But uh, Reed's question is wondering if the same lack of civility which one sees in the legislature during Queen's Park reaches into discourse between staffers in the legislature. What is that like? And how does that lack of civility prevent people potentially from getting involved in politics? So I think uh, a really interesting question on civility from Reed. I, I think there's a big difference between new staffers and experienced staffers. I find the more people have been around, it doesn't matter what political stripe they are, they have this sort of camaraderie of, oh yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what the daily grind of question period and media scrums is like. And you kind of have this sort of kinship with other people who've worked for other parties. Um, what I found really off-putting was how quickly new staffers sort of take to the partisan game of us versus them. And you couldn't do anything possibly right because you were on the other team. And we couldn't do anything possibly wrong because we're on this team. And I find that always frustrating with with new staff and new governments. But especially this this Ford government was like that. But I've met people who worked from the former Ray Days or former Harper staff who I get along with. And when you run into them in different contexts, when you know, they're now lobbyists on their own and stuff like that. I think it's fine, but certainly doesn't help the discourse at the time when they're sort of running those governments and sort of playing the us versus them game to its fullest extent. I've always found the interactions a bit awkward more than anything. It's just you're on different teams and what you say could be used against you, even if it's just kind of light banter. And so that just makes both sides more guarded as a result. And therefore, it's just the conversation doesn't flow naturally. I agree with Alvin. I, the like longer you're there and you get to know people, you can become kind of colleagues. But I, it was I was never outright hostile, but I, I I always just found it awkward. 
I will say there's two points where I think people come together. Actually, the woman I was on the date with was an, an NDP activist, and I found typically some kind of government experience in common helps a lot. I was at a bar before the pandemic and I ran into a like a Ford staffer who was in a different ministry, but a ministry that I'd worked with. He was at infrastructure and I'd worked with infrastructure quite a bit when I was at education. And we knew several of the same civil servants. It was like really interesting to hear what he thought of his files and the ministry. And like, I just kind of cared about like, oh, how are these people that I used to work with? Or how are these files going? How are you, like, how are you finding it as a person navigating this world? And I, I found that it was a good conversation. And I've generally found between the parties, NDP to liberal to be potentially the worst of all of the interparty relationships. But I've also noticed that like things can be quite good between MPs who have the common the common job of representing constituencies. So I worked for Mitzi Hunter. She would often give me stuff from conservative and NDP MPPs and be like, can you make sure you follow up on this? Percy is asking about this school and his writing. And like as a representative, I think that there was a com even though they are on different teams, kind of a camaraderie there. So it's a little bit better behind the scenes. But I find that, like the if you don't have like a job in common and you don't have, and I think, yeah, if you have less experience, uh, it can be quite weird and awkward and nasty and it's awkward almost all the time, but, but yeah, interesting. It's an interesting dynamic for sure. I'm going to move us on to Alan Kahn, who uh, says he is a strong supporter and advocate for ranked ballots and ranked choice voting in municipal elections. Doug Ford canceled the practice. He's encouraged to hear that Del Duca, Horvath, and Schreiner have promised to bring it back. But how likely is that uh, to happen? It's not... doesn't think it's going to be that high a priority for any of the parties, even though as local democracy proponent, he thinks it's important. So yeah, Alan, uh, what do you think of Alan's question? I think it's a good question because you're right, it won't not will not be the top agenda item for any incoming government. But I do think that municipal pressure, especially in London and other places where they were trying to move it forward, will mean that it will get done before the next municipal election. Like it's not a hard change to make in legislation. So I would feel optimistic about this. I would too. I yeah, the and like the is why municipal elections are so important in that and that why this because it came a long way in municipal governance. Like you'll have a bunch of mayors, bit like big city mayors at OMA where ministers have to go every year and meet asking about this i think and that's a it's important to have local champions on this and keep those municipal to provincial voices as strong and active to to keep the provincial government that's elected on this file and, just- and remember it was giving choices to those municipalities right so yeah. the municipalities who voted for it are going to be like yeah let us choose whether or not we want to do this and only a handful of them actually did so if ford gets if he doesn't get reelected i see this being implemented for 2022's municipal election for sure and just to loop back quickly on aaron's question People getting comfortable with ranked ballots at the municipal level, to me, is the gateway to broader electoral reform, because otherwise it feels weird and scary to people. That is all. The, the gateway election. That's why I wanted to. That's why uh, they wanted to nip it in the bud. All right. Uh, Casey Park asks: There seems to be a big disconnect between security theater and actual occupational health and safety measures in our society. I see those people wearing clear face shields instead of masks, or St. Michael's private school installing thermal cameras and plexiglass barriers that do very little to stop the spread of COVID. I'll point out that Casey has been a guest on the pod before, and he's an ICU doc, so he knows what he's talking about. How should the province be thinking about a safe return, both in terms of project? safety to parents who are going to be worried and actually keeping kids safe. I'm going to start with Sam here since I feel like, Sam, you've done a a decent amount of thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I do think that some of the theater, as Casey, I thought astutely put it, is still comforting to parents. Like with that, this is part of the challenge, I think. But I think that we better understand how COVID spreads so much more now that a lot of the like the deep cleaning, as an example, like surface cleaning was considered so important and so many resources were put into it. And then it just like became a thing we're just going to continue to do, even though I think now people are like, well, is that really that important? So I I do think people better understand it now. I think parties like the Ontario Liberals and the NDP are advocating for the things that will be necessary for a safe return to school. But I have literally no confidence, like negative confidence, pessimism, some heads in this government implementing them. And I actually don't like I'm a bit mystified by it. But like even recent, like Lecce was out last week reinforcing that the same messages so no i I don't feel i don't feel like they're going to invest in in what's uh, necessary which is sad and i'm sure there will be a fourth wave in the fall and that schools will contribute to the spread whether it results in lockdowns because of the vaccination rate i think remains to be seen but it almost feels inevitable because we're taking no steps to really to prevent it Yeah, I think part of that is first recognizing how COVID actually spreads. And there's a lot of debate around aerosol transmission, like transmission via air or droplets. And we've moved past the surface side of things. And while there continues to be a lot of debate, I think more and more epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists are saying that it is aerosol transmission, which changes the name of the game, right? It, it changes how you deal with PPE inside hospitals. It it also necessitates that you improve vet- ventilation in schools and other congregated areas and like long-term care. Home. And if we're so if we're not starting from that very basic fact, it's really challenging to actually create a safe September because you're not starting from where the science has now progressed to. And I have a lot of debates with family members who are still stuck on the droplets, that this is about droplets and not aerosol transmission. And they might be right. I don't think they are. I think that the science is saying that it is that COVID is spread through aerosol transmission. And even if it weren't, why aren't we like, why aren't we investing in what it takes to improve air quality in our schools? Like that is what that is what improved ventilation and spacing in the classroom would yield. And so I don't understand the hesitance towards it and why we're not taking a risk-based approach as opposed to being so hesitant and not learning from the past year and a half that when you behave in that way, you're always falling behind and you're unable to catch up. All right. Sarah O'Sullivan is asking, there has been a lot of criticism of Toronto's municipal government over violent evictions of encampments. What should the Ontario government's role be regarding the provision of safe and affordable housing? This is a big question. Grima, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Yeah, this is a really big question. And I'd say to start, the City of Toronto's treatment of people who live in encampments in, at Trinity Bellwoods and the clearing of encampments a couple of weeks ago is infringement of their human right to housing. So let's just let's start there and recognize that there's a lot, again, of debate around offers that city officials had made and whether those those housing offers were taken up or not. But I think that we have to understand this from a systems perspective. And for decades, we've 
underinvested in affordable housing in the province and across Canada. And the fact that we've relied on on market housing and that we've relied on municipal zoning to help build the quantity and type of housing we need has led to failure and that housing affordability has become a crunch for middle income and higher income people. And for those with lower incomes, they can't even afford a place to rent, both in not only in, in market rents and private rental homes or apartments, but also in, amongst social housing units. Right now in the city of Toronto, the wait list for a social housing unit is 10 years long. So I don't know what we expect people to do and how they will lead a healthy life if they can't afford the roof over their head for 10 years. 10 years from now, the climate that we're going to be experiencing is going to be very different than it is today. And so to ask people to just hold on for 10 years is a really tall order. We've done some analysis to show that between 2014 and 18. So again, this predates this current government, but the Ontario government only spent less than 0.3% of its annual budget on social housing programs in the province. That's less than half a percent on something that is so integral to our well-being. And so the only way out of this is significant investments in social and affordable housing, in the building of supply and in the acquisitions of stocks. So there's a lot of, let's say, motels or hotels that are going up for sale that that nonprofits and governments can actually buy and turn them into affordable housing units. But that takes that takes some that takes a dedicated sort of sense to do that. And I don't know that we've got that in the province right now. No, I will say one of the things, the pennies that has dropped is we've talked about this on the pod. And especially as I've listened to your analysis, and I've read some of the stuff that you've been working on, Graham, about this is that the Ford government in many ways has a housing policy. It is just a housing policy that will not assist with the lens that I think Sarah is asking her question in. If you believe that sort of infinite sprawl, infinite expansion of private development and outwards into areas that might be less and more affordable is the way to increase the housing supply. Like, I think that is how they would answer this question. And the thing that I am the most worried about here, and I've said this before on this pod, but is that I don't actually hear a super coherent answer to what the alternative would be out of the other progressive parties, liberals or NDP, because I think it's really hard to do almost anything but what the Ford government is doing if you aren't willing to touch the current development strategy that is in mm-hmm. Ontario, if you aren't willing to touch homeowner equity, if you aren't willing to touch these things that start being like real third rails. And so it's a big political challenge. I think one of maybe the defining ones in Ontario politics. And from a political perspective, it is one of the ones that almost shapes our politics because there is so much money from housing. Uh, yeah. And that is not just big developers out there, although it's a lot of big developers. That is like people who have their own individual wealth in housing. And so this is a this is like a societal transformation thing, and I don't see an easy way to tackle it. And I'm really hoping that there are some people maybe who aren't ready to go public with it, but like in political parties who are thinking about it, because like we're totally fucked if like a one-bedroom condo in 10 years in Toronto costs $1.5 million and everyone needs to move to Acton to actually have yeah. a place that they can raise raise a kid. I'm going to move us on to Andrew Jaycock, who asks, what the hell is up with Carolyn Bennett? How does she still have her job? Should Justin Trudeau have asked her to step down? I'm glad to have the opportunity to answer this. I think 
she absolutely should have stepped down. I don't think she should have had to have been asked. And I don't understand the political calculus. Like she allowed her personal animosity and the past history of that relationship to get the best of her, obviously. But she's not just any minister. She's the minister in charge of Crown Indigenous Relations. You, I, I still don't understand it. And we're going into an election in August. There's an opportunity to shuffle the cabinet afterward. Like it's not even like that much important work is going to get done in the next month before the election. So like, I don't even substantively get it. I think the people asking like, what does it take to get a minister to resign in federally in this government is a good question. I'm sure she's done amazing work. I know some people who work for her who probably will not appreciate what I'm saying, but sometimes you just have to fall on your sword. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we can come up with things that we can decide that would take someone out of of cabinet. But anyway, she's not even running the department anymore in the sense that she's running indigenous services, right? Like her sole responsibility is negotiating and working with band councils and indigenous leadership. Um and so when they are the ones telling you that we no longer have faith and confidence in this minister and we don't want to work with her, then she's lost. She's lost every sort of privilege she had to represent the crown and and to take care of those relationships. Um, And I think it's unfortunate because I think she was doing a pretty good job. She always says the right things. At the same time, I don't know why there wasn't an election that we found her to run in somewhere else abroad or have some sort of ambassadorship. I mean, she runs in the safest riding in the country in Toronto, St. Paul's. Anybody, any liberal standard bearer could win there. And I think you know, if you were going to replace her, now would be the time. Or, But she would, yeah. I don't even think she, think she necessarily had to step down as an MP. I just think she can't be in her portfolio anymore. I think that it's important to ask yourselves what are our absolutes in terms of what we expect from our political leaders. And there is no doubt in my mind that the message that was sent had racist and sexist innuendo and undertones. And that's important to be called out. I don't know Minister Bennett well. I don't know her at all. I'm sure she's a really great person and did not, is not racist and is not sex. But we would not in we, if a minister from another party had said something like that, everybody would be up in arms. And so I think that I just I don't understand why, why we're not calling out what it is for what it is, and then taking appropriate action and creating the pressure that is necessary for that action to be taken, because it's reflective of who is allowed to get away with this kind of behavior and who is not. And I think that speaks a lot about who the federal government is and who they actually are versus who they say they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's disappointing. It's just disappointing. I'm going to go to our favorite. Uh, I'm going to just say one of our uh, favorite all-time listeners, uh, Shmolexi Shmowite, who is quite a name there on Shmolexi, but you know, he's, uh, I know he listens to every episode. I, and he's asking, uh, Stephen Del Duca was elected leader largely on his experience in party building and a belief that he was the, in the best place to rebuild the Ontario Liberal Party after the 2018 election. How do we think he's done so far? And what is the state of the OLP heading into next year's election? What are his notable accomplishments? What is there still left to do? So, I mean, I think Stephen's done a pretty good job on the organizational front, pulling together former members and candidates like they've nominated, I think, a third of the required candidates already, which is great. And the debt, I think, is huge. The fact that this party got out of debt, obviously using a lot of the resources available with the promote subsidy um, 
is a really big deal. And that was the most pressing concern for the party. We kind of got, I got a state of the party briefing from, from the CFO when I was running for leader about how dire the situation was. So the fact that we're out of that and out of those woods is incredibly impressive. I think the biggest challenge that Stephen and the rest of the party still has is, you know, common to all first time leaders. Most people still don't know who he is. Most people still don't know what he's trying to do. And the party and people in his pot are working hard to put forward good ideas that will be associated with the with the brand. And that's great. And the party needs to continue doing that. It needs to do a lot more of that. It needs to turn a lot of that into those sort of election type of policies that people are going to be debating and that'll take over the conversation of the election. Because right now it's around, we don't like Doug Ford. I don't know who Stephen is. And obviously I've never voted for Andrea and I'm not going to give her a fourth chance. Do you know what I mean? So it, it seems like most people are probably stuck with, I don't really know where I'm going to park my vote. And so that's where the policy has a chance to sort of come through. I don't think I have a lot to add. I I agree uh, mostly with what uh, Alvin said. I think becoming a new leader in the middle of a pandemic when you can't tour and go around the provinces hard, I think opportunities will uh, present themselves more in in the coming year, especially as we get uh, closer and closer to the election. But I agree that the brand has remained strong and the fact that Andrew is still the leader is a net positive probably for the liberals and so they have every opportunity to capitalize on uh this and they have to position Stephen as being the adult in the room with good thoughtful ideas com- in contrast to ford and whether they can pull it off remains to be seen but i think that's the next step yeah i mean the really tricky part is that the election's in a year right so People are going to forget a lot of the boondoggles, uh, especially the early four-day boondoggles, let alone the COVID-related ones, right? When everybody's out and about and things seem normal again. And who knows, we have a federal election this summer where the pod might have to come back or this fall. That sort of feeling around opposite governments and stuff like that will, will linger around too. So I think it'll be tougher for the liberals to win if Justin wins again and if COVID really recovers well. And I will say, though, know, we've never in our lifetimes had an election after a global pandemic and nobody like the typical like yeah. political calculus that people you know stop paying attention to politics like nobody has ever paid more attention to politics than right now because it's controlling everybody's day-to-day lives and and like daily activities so like i do wonder if the people who have turned off for this second time are gonna remember you know what i'm trying to say like i think the liberals can count on quite a bit of that and the and the ndp attacking steven when people still don't know who steven is is so telling in terms of where they think their biggest competition is going to come from yeah yeah as uh as george w bush once said fool me once shame on to you fool me twice shame on won't get fooled again. All right, last question. It's a quick one. Kai Kai's Cookies, which for those of you that don't listen and had the pleasure not to hear about this, Doug Ford's daughter has opened a cookie shop called Kai Kai's Cookies, all with K's. And so uh, Sebastian Miller is asking us, is this a dog whistle? Or do we think the Ford family is just so out of touch that they would not put together that calling a place with the acronym KKK might be perceived as one. Yeah, the Beaverton jumped on this and we even talked about this on our chat when it happened. I just think they are so out of touch. Like, honest to God, I've met most of them 
they are just not in the same world as everyone else. They think they're the Kennedys. They honest to God think they're the Kennedys of Canada and that they're that sort of royal political dynasty. And no, in no way do I think they would have said, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds like KKK. We shouldn't do that. No, they didn't think about that. Yeah, I would say one thing I've learned in working in government, almost never ascribe to ill intent what incompetence will can easier explain. It is almost always the case. I also think that the lesser crime of Kai Kai's cookies is that if you there is uh, if you buy one of the boxes of cookies as opposed to like individual cookies, the, the per cookie price goes up, which is something that a lot of people also pointed out. So not expecting big things out of Kai Kai's cookies. And that is all the time we have for this season, I guess. I just want to thank you so much for listening, not only to this episode, which I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I love going through listener questions. It is a great way for us to know what is on your mind, which is really important to us. And it's just a moment where we really want to appreciate you for listening to the pod. We are really excited to come back. There is so much stuff happening in the next year. We are also really excited to take a break, enjoy some of the summer, just turn our brains off for a little bit, and then come back to some of the important fights that we have to fight in the fall. want to send a special shout out to our subscribers on Patreon. It means the world to us that there are people in our audience who like what we are doing so much to support the pod, not only by listening to us, which is great, but also by donating three to five bucks a month to help our operation. I will say that because of your support, we are able to almost fully self-finance our technology costs. We are able to make this the kind of operation that I am proud to run in a lot of different ways and where we are able to stay on at least sort of the acceptable edge of podcast recording techniques. We once talked to a network that was interested in acquiring us, and they said that our sound quality it was actually one that a thing that they noticed. We, even though in our switch to remote, we didn't lose much in terms of our sound, and that is only because of Patreon. That is only because of Patreon that happened. So, if you are at all inclined, go to Patreon.com/slash/ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca. Hit that Patreon link, subscribe. We. It goes such a long way, and we really appreciate it. One last thing I want to appreciate before signing off is the team that I get to record with. Sam, Karima, Alvin. This thing was in many ways started because I, after working in government, I didn't want to stop talking to my friends who I love talking to every day about politics. And this pod has just become a great excuse to continue that. Fahim Khan is just doing brilliant stuff on our social media right now. If you liked a tweet, you've liked a little sound clip, but that is Fahim, and that is the effort that he puts in. And thank you, Fahim, for everything you do. Harmon Mundy, been with us for a while, provides, I think, in addition to occasionally dragging our liberal tendencies in the group chat, uh, brings a really important perspective to the pod is a strong editorial voice in the show and uh, especially on weeks where we are, get too busy to do some of the detailed research that is so important to the brand of this pod helps make it happen so Harman, Fahim you are amazing volunteers thank you I guess one last thing before we go I for the last season we've been ending 
ending every pod with a land acknowledgement. And land land acknowledgements can be tricky. They can come off as trite. They can come off as performative. And I think that one thing that we have tried to do on this pod is not question the voices of Indigenous communities in this country. Uh, We are going to continue to try doing that. We are going to try and feature their voices more. But also I think they are, it is important to recognize how important that is in this moment where we are realizing that the history of this country is one of genocide and one that we have largely not grappled with. And so I think that for this podcast, that means probably redoubling, making greater our commitment to featuring Indigenous voices, to exploring that history, to not letting it go when it falls out of the news. Uh, And I also think for each and every person listening, it means questioning your role, questioning what you can give up, or questioning what this country should give up to, in some way, approach, maybe recognizing the sins of our past. Uh, And until we can do that, we can't move on. So it's a bit of a somber note, but mostly I want to end this season on uh, a note of immense gratitude and a commitment to come back in the fall, talk with y'all again, explore some important issues. Yeah, that's it for me. Have a great summer. Have a relaxing summer. Have a restful summer if you can. And uh, yeah, we'll see you for all kinds of important fights that we're going to have in September.